Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. I haven't done a podcast for uh, well over a year now. I moved and, you know, real world just got got in the way. Now, I'm going to start with uh, doing a podcast on the European Super League and it's entitled An Obituary. When discussing the European Super League, what you're dealing with is this is anger, frustration. You know, people just hate the European Super League on site. They're, the people do not have a people. It wasn't as if people didn't give it a chance. It was just the concept was the worst idea at the worst possible point for the average football fan. You had the pandemic going on. You had a lot of anger and frustration all across the world. And then right in the middle of it, you then have this huge change in football that happened pretty much overnight. You, if you went to bed early on that Sunday and woke up on Monday, the world was just completely different in terms of you know European club football. And that's just that's an, a major shock. If you compare you know, some of all the changes that have happened in football since, let's say, the 90s, you had the, the Premier League, you know, coming into being you then had the rebrand of the european cup into the champions league and on all the changes that have then come about since then that was was a slow burn effect originally you know the champions league there were some changes but generally speaking it had the same trophy it had the same method whereby all the teams that won their leagues in europe played against each other yes you in the early 90s they had you know a group stage and that got abandoned and then it was really the 20 the champions league expansion in 1997 where you had the teams that finished second were getting into the champions league that's when things really changed but Theoretically, for us, yeah, that was a very slow burn effect. The The impact of the Premier League's rebrand was important in English football, but not for the first few years. It didn't really affect Europe. You know, Ajax of, Nether- in the, of the Netherlands were winning the, the Champions League. You had France and you know, Marseille. They won the European Cup. The English teams weren't particularly successful. You know, Serie A was still steady. You had Real Madrid and Barca in the mid nineties were you know, on their way back up. You know, the Premier League didn't wasn't playing well in Europe. There was a lack of foreign stars as well. So really, when you're starting talking about the European Super League, I suppose you have to give the context of the symbolism of the actual European Cup itself, the actual trophy. Now, the Premier League, when it rebrands from you know divisions one, two, three, and four, they have a new trophy. I suppose my idea would be the principle behind it was is that the 80s were, were so horrifying for English football. It was pochmarked with tragedies, with violence, with anger. That The idea was is that you needed a change. You needed something that was completely different that would basically cast that sort of dark period of English football into the past and then create a brand new era. Whereby with with changing the European Cup to the Champions League, you wanted to retain the aura and the historical links. So, I suppose what was so fascinating about the the European Super League effectively coming out overnight was that it's rare for such a for such a trophy with such a with a tournament with such a long history and leagues with such you know that were deeply rooted to ever actually have. A competitor. I mean, I suppose the, the best example would be, you know, talk about in the 1970s with the National Hockey League and the National Basketball Association. They both had competitors. And, you know, to a lesser extent, you know, in NFL, you know, American football, you had the USFL in the 80s. But basically what would happen is those leagues would fight off and then assimilate, you know, the competition. They would always come out on top. You know, the, the context... But even then, hockey, ice hockey and basketball in the 70s were not massively as ascendant as baseball, as American football. And the same way the Champions League is absolutely ascendant. It is rare to have something of that magnitude challenge it and almost succeed. I mean, the point is that you have this argument for the power. So in other words, you know, the World Series, the Super Bowl, the Stanley Cup, they have a, an appeal in popular imagination. Although you could argue historically with the World Series and the Super Bowl, they originally those were confected. It was basically you know, the Usurper League, with whoever won that, against the actual competitors who were the real champions. Because you have this sense that, you know, with, you know, 
supporters and media managers and players that effectively these new leagues weren't up to scratch. They weren't as good. And that, you know, in some ways you were almost dulling it. You know, the classic example is that there was no 1904 World Series. At the end of the year, the the um, National League champions, New York Giants, go on tour. John McGraw, their manager, says, I think we're the best team. We aren't even going to play whoever won the American League. It's just not, doesn't count for us. It's just an exhibition series. And I think in some ways there's, there's always that point that you can really see is that well, what if you lose? I suppose it's almost like Super Bowl three. the idea that, you know, the New York Jets winning when they were massive underdogs. People just assumed that the original, you know, National Football League teams were better than their AFL competitors. Which I think, therefore, means that if you're going to talk about European club football, you almost have to go back to the beginning. And I suppose there is this interesting sort of chicken and egg conundrum. Was it the clubs that made the European Cup or the European Cup that made the teams? Now, I suppose you can make an argument that Real Madrid, that there was always going to be a, in Spanish football, a massive team probably based somewhere in Barcelona, in, in the vicinity of Barcelona, and there was always going to be a massive team based in Madrid. That is the most logical assumption if you compare all the other major you know, European capitals. Most have always had some, you know, some level of successful football teams. But I suppose the element is is that the power of Real Madrid in the popular imagination, you know, outside of Spain, is their all-white kit and all of their success that they had traditionally. And the success that they had in Europe. That's what captured people's popular imagination. Now, I suppose the interesting point is that, I suppose it creates a counterfactual. What would have happened had the... European Cup started in the early 50s rather than the mid-50s. Whereby, if you look at the, the actual teams who, were, who would, would have, I suppose, been at the top level, you'd have had Wolves, Reims, and Hibs. Now, those places, so you're looking at Wolverhampton, Champagne Country, France, and Edinburgh with Hibs, they're not quite as evocative as Madrid. Lisbon, Milan, and those were the teams that were originally successful in the Champions League. You had Real Madrid, you had AC Milan, you had Benfica. And those places are more evocative, more able to garner mass support. If you're trying to sell the, um, a club competition midweek under floodlights, it's a lot easier to have a dominant Real Madrid team than a pretty good Wolves team or a pretty good Reims team. And so, I suppose what this now leads to is can the Champions League survive without the big clubs being dominant? Now, I think in some ways it depends on what sort of category of fan you're talking about. I suppose if you look at the, the casual fan who will you know, not watch every single game, but will watch the big games, I suppose the logic for them would be that it's much easier to tune in when it's Real Madrid versus PSG. You know, Big clubs, big players, easy to understand. Now, let's say if you have a European Championship, you know, a Champions League final where it's Olympiacos versus Lille, that is going to be, you know, you're not going to know those teams as well. They're going to be less popular. It's easy for those people to just miss that game. Not to be as interested. Now, the dedicated fans who watched it, the European Cup final, the Champions League final, come what may. But you also have to factor in that you now have fans that don't support it in a traditional linear narrative fashion. You know, oh, I'm from Tottenham, I will support Spurs. You now have people that, I like football, but I support Kylian Mbappe. Wherever Kylian Mbappe goes, I will follow. <laughs> so, when we now factor in... in so why were people so angry? And I suppose in some ways, because you've had this trophy that has been the same ever since day one, you've all, you know, old big ears, that trophy is iconic in of its own sense. And that's, you know, why they didn't junk it. You know, they could have easily do different trophy for the Champions League that might have, you know, tried to garner more interest and then give them the trophy to Real Madrid. And then that could have been a, you know, changing of the guard moment but they didn't they kept it and so 
as a result, you in the mind of the football fan is that you know there isn't the same way that if you look at the Premier League and its own records. So in other words, if you ask the average football fan under the age of 40 who's got the most goals in English football, Alan Shearer's Premier League record of 260 stands at the top, whereby actually the record is Jimmy Greaves has it if you're talking about English football as a whole. With that, we don't have a situation where whoever won the Champions League in 1991 and who won the Champions League in 19, you know, the European Cup in 91 and the Champions League in 92, they are not considered, there's no difference. The, 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 it is a singular tournament. Yes, there was a name change, but that was you know, largely superficial, which will be mentioned. So, to an extent, the success of the European Cup, the Champions League, it is dependent on myth. It, and it's generational. So, people saw the Champions League and the European Cup as having a sense of egalitarianism, a sense of fairness. And that's something that's you know, probably more particular to England and the UK than perhaps is to Europe and the wider you know, watching world. And I think that's because it's intrinsically interlinked with English success in the 70s and early 80s, specifically the early 80s, where you had a situation where Aston Villa won it, Forrest won it twice, you know, Liverpool was successful, even teams like Derby and Leeds got to a semi-final and or were losing finalists. And there is an element of you know, rose-tinted specs to that. And it was in a different era where you could have the sort of the titan manager. You had Leeds with Don Revy, you had the Liverpool bootroom dynasty, you had Clough at Derby and then Nottingham Forest, you know, Clough, Peter Taylor. But it's not... they. We almost, in a way, retrospectively considered these teams almost, in a way, minions. You know, not minnows rather than minions, sorry. But... And because all of those teams then sort of declined. Villa spent several years in the championship. You know, Leeds, Derby, Forest all played League One. And it wasn't like, oh, you just had one, you know, one, one year stop in League One and then you won the title with 110 points and led from start to finish. No, those teams spent lots of years in there. And so, so with this myth, is that you saw the Champions League and the European Cup, and because the original you know, European Cup was purely a cup competition, you it was, you know, whoever was best on the day, or best over two legs, and there was an element of luck of the draw. Yet, if you actually look at the history of the Champions League, that history of the, the tournament as a whole, it doesn't, it was never a situation where the minnows ever actually won. You know, the point is, is that for all of Clough's genius, all of Peter Taylor's genius, they spent money, big money at the time. They, you know, the one million pound, first million pound signing in English football, Trevor Francis, Peter Shilton, the record fee for a goalkeeper. You know, Liverpool spent money. Leeds, you know, spent money. They were big clubs. You know, they had big supporters groups. Maybe you could say Derby were on the smaller side. But, you know, the 70s and the 80s, maybe the 70s more so in English football, was not a period of time with huge amounts of dominance. Yes, Liverpool were overall successful, but they didn't win it every single year. You know, there was a sense that if you had a good year, you could win it. If you had the right management, the right players. And I suppose... The element of prestige that came from you know being you know European Cup being champions, but the point was is that the 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 start of the tournament was generally you know you have situations where teams were winning their first round ten nil eleven nil. I remember watching highlights of Derby playing their first round the European Cup against uh, the Irish champions, and they annihilated them. I mean, it was just men against boys. But people won't remember that. You remember the classic ties. You remember when, you know, Liverpool and Forest, you know, were at the pinnacle of English football, fighting for the titles, fighting in Europe, and they got, you know, pushed together in one of the earlier rounds of the European Cup. There's always a sense, if you look through the history of the European Cup, that you always have moments where it's like, well, actually, that was the final. Those were the two best teams, but that happened in round three instead of the quarters, the semis, or, or the final. So... And in a way, 
that element of Rose Tender Spitz fits into why there was a lot of scepticism back in the British press regarding expansionism in 1997. The idea that actually the team that would finish second, there was a you know old man you know throwing his fist at the sky, yelling at the clouds because it was like, well, how how could the team that finished second possibly ever you know, win the European Cup, which is supposed to be for the champions? And if you look at it, those people were wrong. You know, the Champions League has not suffered for having more teams in it. It has expanded, and I suppose at this point you could probably make a decent argument that actually, instead of having the top four English teams, you should probably have the top six. There's enough talent there, and enough talent across you know, the major sort of top five European leagues that you know some level of expansion was required. And that actually having these battles for fourth place... <sighs> I'm not 100% sure that really has huge amounts of you know, benefits and that's to the actual tournament itself because you're dealing with stratification. So I think to take a, a step back, I think we need to look at it more sort of holistically. I've hinted at this in the, sort of the, the previous segment. The European Cup didn't ever really create egalitarianism. That was largely sort of mythological. You know, if you look at like the Verona team that won the Serie A in, nine, in 1985, they were almost the equivalency of Leicester winning the, the Premier League a few years ago. Those teams never did well in the Champions League. Yeah, Leicester got through to the quarterfinals, but that was, relatively speaking, they had quite a... quite a straightforward group. That, you know, the team they played in... Um, you know, first knockout round wasn't the greatest, and by the time they finally hit Atletico Madrid, you know it. They weren't. It was more of a technical knockout, but they didn't really land much of a glove on Atletico Madrid. And I think had they played a Real Madrid or a Barcelona, I think it, they could have been. I would imagine they would have been hammered. And that really, they changed the seedings as a result because basically Leicester got the top seed, even though they've barely been in Europe at all, even in the 90s. I think they had one gate. They had a tie against Red Star Belgrade that they lost. They had really, realistically, no European pedigree, but then got into you know the top seeds because of the Premier League and that they then jimmied that. And you can there's two arguments to make. You can say that was unfair because basically Leicester deserved a decent seeding because they had won the Premier League. But at the same time, they've got a really relatively easy draw when actually their European coefficient, which was actually, you know, practically speaking, non-existent. But the thing is, is that you're not going to get that many Leicesters. You know, that is a once in a generation, once in every 20, 30 years, you might have a team come out from nowhere. That happens in different leagues. I've talked about Verona. You could talk about maybe Deportivo La Coruña to a lesser extent. You could probably talk about... You know, Lille winning the league in France. But those teams rarely ever made much of an impact the next season in the Champions League or in the European Cup. You know, it's an interesting one. Is that what was more... Who was the, I suppose, the, the most surprising Champions League winner ever? It's difficult. I mean, some of the times what you, you have is a situation where what may have been at the time... A shock, let's say Ajax winning their first um, European Cup in the early 70s. That may have been a shock at the time, but actually now that we look back on it retrospectively, you see you know, the backbone of you know, a great Dutch national team, Netherlands national team, that you know, will reach two World Cup finals in a row. It's not as surprising as it would have been at that point. You have Johan Cruyff, all of the genius players that, you know, that created total football. Maybe you could sit there and say Bayern Munich's one in their first European Cup win was maybe a bit of a surprise. But then you know they had Beckenbauer, and then they won three in a row. And that was you know some of those players were the backbone of the you know German national team that won the World Cup in 1974. So. Yeah, you're talking about maybe Marseille in '93, but they lost the, the the title because of the you know Bernard Tapie, the owner, paying off the referee in their league game the week before. So yeah, you can put asterisks on that. But even if you look at that team, you know you had Deschamps. There was a load of players in there that ended up playing a, a deep good role for France, and then they won the World Cup in '98 and the Euros in 2000. So. 
Okay, maybe you could say the Red Star team in 91 or Style Bucharest in the mid-80s, but you have to factor in then that you've got like the Iron Curtain. There was outside politics to it. The elements that those teams were able to keep their players, they weren't able to leave for Europe until they were like 29. And so those pla- so you had domestic leagues that were a lot stronger. And that, you know, if you look at it, Romania did well in World Cup 94. Yes, always the what if if had Yugoslavia not collapsed, whether they would have won something, yes, say maybe Euro 92 or World Cup 94. You know, those teams were exceptionally good. And if you look at it now, the chances of being able to keep a effectively a national team at domestic level is, is, is virtually impossible at this stage. So then suddenly... Those surprises aren't particularly surprising. Maybe you could say Celtic, but then that was, you know, Scotland beat England 3-2 in 1967, and Scotland fans will always tell you that meant that they were the world champions. So there's still not really a situation where you could say, well, there's been a huge shock. You know, you know Sampdoria got through the final and lost to Barcelona. Spurs lost to Liverpool. Atletico Madrid reached two finals, both against Real. And symbolically enough, Real will triumphant both times. You know, Panathinaikos in the 70s. The point is, is that if you drew a line pretty much from Italy and you take away Stal Bucharest and Red Star, teams West do not go anywhere. You know, Turkey, you know, Galatasaray have got to the latter stages a couple of times. But... Broadly speaking, you know, there's very few countries that are particularly successful. Yes, Holland have had Ajax, and that was really the 70s and the, you know, the mid-90s. Outside of that, you know, they got through to that semi-final, but then they lost to, to Spurs. You've reached a stage now where actually the European Cup has never actually produced... And a period of time where a team can basically have a Cinderella run, win it, and then get big. That's never happened. You know, all of those teams that have finished second and runners-up, their Cinderella runs don't continue. Sampdoria lose all of their best players. They all scatter. You know, Sampdoria have never quite been the same since. You know, the Spurs team, the Pochino, fell apart. Ended up with Jose, and you had a period, you know, several years of playing, you know, Europa Conference football, Europa League, before that they could get back into the Champions League. Yeah, Atletico Madrid. You've had Diego Simeone that's kept it going, but now he looks like he's at the end of it, the sort of that run. And you know, they won a couple of titles, but they never won the big one, and they never even that. The two league titles they won, they won it on the last day of the season. Their first one, they won the last day of the season against Barcelona. That's a, as bad, you know, that's narrow. Barcelona won that game. Barca would have won the league. Under end of COVID, yes, they won the league, but not by a huge amount. But that was, you know, in a period of time where Real Madrid were winning the Champions League pretty much on almost on a yearly basis. You know, you've now created a situation where so to me, and you know, you look at the Valencia team, they won the league under Rafa, reached two finals. You know, didn't lay and manage to lay a glove on. You know, you've had Dynamo Kiev got to a semi-finals in the nineties, but that's it. You know, none of those teams were then able. You know, they lost Rebrov to Spurs. They lost Shevchenko to AC Milan. And and even that had elements of you know the Iron Curtain, the outside politics to it. You've now reached a stage where you've almost got a situation where actually no one is particularly good at the Champions League. I mean, maybe you could even, if you're talking about you know, underdogs, maybe the 2004 Liverpool team. But at that point, really, you were dealing with a situation where the Serie A was in decline. You were just about reaching forward for the, you know, before the age when the great Barcelona team under Pep happened. You then had, you know, Real Madrid came, were just declining from their team of the sort of early 2000s that were particularly dominant. I mean, maybe I suppose that the absolute last shocking one was uh, the one I've forgotten was the two thousand and three Porto one, but that was Porto versus Monaco. Now Monaco spent money in the nineties and had success, and there was always an element of glamour about Monaco, and you then had Porto, but then you also had to factor in that that was Jose. Jose, you know, had won the you know the UEFA Cup. 
then won the Champions League. And then went on to a storied, amazing career. He's had success at Chelsea, he's had success at Inter, he had relative success at Madrid. You know, he's won it all. But then you look at it, there was some of the players from that Porto team ended up being in the, you know, where Portugal reached the finals of the Euros for the first time. But that was really it. I mean, that was the moment where basically everything had... It was there, it was the Champions League's equivalent of Leicester. But even then, Porto had a relatively dominant position within Portuguese football. You know, Monaco had, you know, always had that element of being able to get better players, you know, due to it. I suppose the glamour of it, the element, you know, the tax side of things. But... If you're calling those teams underdogs, that's a bit of a stretch, isn't it? You know, Monaco in the late 90s had had success. They'd you know, beaten Manchester United. They'd developed talent. You know, you'd had you know, under Arsene. They'd, you know, won, you know, the champion that in the late 80s. They really, you know, you're, you're struggling if you're calling Porto. And even, the, you know, that 2004 Liverpool team. You had, if you look at some of the players they had in terms of Gerrard, in terms of Carragher, they were, you know, a team that was on the way up. And if you look at it, they had also won the, you know, Cup Winners' Cup. They, you know, they were there or thereabouts within the Premier League. So again, it wasn't, to my mind, it was close to being a shock, but not the biggest shock in the world. And Liverpool have that storied history with it that, let's say, Atletico Madrid don't have that Spurs don't have, that Valencia didn't have. So now I'm going to get to the European Super League. I suppose the the first question is, is, do you think the European Super League would have happened but for COVID-19? I think had the money been okay, had you know, the revenues not been affected... Would those teams, especially Real Madrid, who have been successful, Barca, who who were relatively successful, Juventus, who'd had a long period of dominance in Italy, would those teams have been <clears throat> so desperate to push forward for this reform? I, I don't think so. I think there was talk that at some point you'd want to have some level of control, but I don't think it was something that had to happen in the here and now. I think it was, there was... A lack of leadership, and I think it was built from a position of panic, not strength or enlightenment. Yeah, you know, I think if you look at the investment capital that was in it, it was somebody, you know, effectively at a desk in an investment bank saying, ah, Juventus have some financial problems, Barca have some financial problems, Rail have some financial problems. This is an opportunity when they're vulnerable that we can then throw some money at them and then they will then take this on. They will then basically, you know, be the forefront of it and we will just be the power behind the, you know, the power behind the throne. So there was no reform. In fact, I think, to me, personally... I think the European Super League was wrong. I think it was ideologically wrong. It there was no there was no reform to it. It was just badly thought out. It wasn't for the benefit of the fans. It was for the benefit of the investment bank. It was for the you know benefit of the teams involved. Now, my personal opinion when I first heard about it on that Monday morning was if you were to think about it purely Purely as a Spurs fan, what was the most beneficial thing, being part of the European Super League, was more beneficial. That was going to be a way that you could keep Harry. That was a way that you could keep some of your best players, so you weren't going to lose them. Now, was that the best thing for European football? No. And I'm perfectly glad that it didn't happen. Now, I think that there are points that I think the Champions League gets mythologised within the within the football fan, and particularly the English football fan, in a way that keeps... that You're looking at it with rose-tinted specs. You're not necessarily looking at it in the sense of what it actually is. It's what it means to you, which is completely different. So in other words, if you were to sit there and say, well, actually, the European Cup you know, doesn't create Cinderella runs, you are, you're right. You know, that is what the history of that entire tournament tells you. But... You don't want to believe that. You want to believe that your team has the shot at it. 
So where the European Super League had a point was, well, reality is is that is there a realistic prospect of success for for countries east of Italy? No. You know, Russia's teams have never had particularly great success in the tournament. You know, the Turkish league doesn't look like it's going to provide a dominant you know, Galatasaray or Besiktas. You know, realistically, is a team outside of the top European five, top five European leagues going to win? No. I mean, the team closest to that was Ajax. They were immediately atomized. You know, even Benfica, you know, they sell their best players you know, for money and that keeps them going. You know, really, is anyone actually particularly good at winning the Champions League outside of Real Madrid? Well, no. Bayern basically win it sort of once a decade. You know, Liverpool have had more losses in the final than victories. You know, Barca haven't you know had one you know win you know, had two per you know two successes one in ninety two and that's the European Cup and then you have you know one before Messi with Ronaldinho and Rijkaard. And then the Messi years, and nothing since then. You know, you know, Manchester City, I mean, you could argue with Manchester City, it's ideological, it's self-inflicted peps, you know, hit making tactical decisions, being unable to, you know, unable, unwilling to adjust to tournament dynamics. You know, Chelsea, you know, a couple of their wins were sort of smashing grabs, where they actually had poor league seasons, did just enough, won the final. So, where... I think the European Super League, where its honesty showed you what was wrong with European football, there is an element that actually there's a blunt honesty to it. That really, actually, what do you want from European club football? Do you want it to be this ide- this ideological, this historically anyone could win it, tournament where everyone gets into the, the tournament everyone has the same chance which is basically un, un, unrealistic it's really you know the, the quarterfinals the semi-finals of the champions league are the same teams year in year out you get the occasional team that makes a a run at it but if you're calling it like a tottenham a cinderella team and they're one of the top 15 top 10 biggest clubs in world football then you, you've had a failure at some point you know, if if you're saying that Ajax, who've had all of the success in you know within Netherlands football, within Dutch football, that again, it, it's probably that shows you more. And that really, if you wanted the best teams playing at, at the best, then the European Super League was probably the best way of going about it. Now, where they failed, which will be the next part of this podcast, but you know, at some point, actually, is there really any point to half of the teams actually getting to the group stages playing in the Champions League? They don't, they're not going to succeed. You can't, you might, you might have one run at it. You might get to your quarterfinal, you might get to your semifinal, you will then lose whichever good players that you have. You can't then build on it the next year. For example, in the 90s, there was room for you know, Ajax to have won the Champions League and then get to the final the next year because they managed to keep just enough of their quality players. I don't think you could do that within modern football. I just don't think that is realistic or even likely. So, what you have with the... And let's, let's look at why, you, why did they pick the teams that they picked. Now, the point is, is that with Arsenal and Spurs, at that exact moment, neither of those two teams were particularly successful. But the point is, I think, where the European Super League was, was basically one of... Was one of logistics. Could Spurs with their stadium, with Arsenal with their stadium, with their histories of being able to get to the final of the Champions League, could they, on a you know, relatively enough, could they compete at that top level? Could they realistically, if you were in the tournament every single year, could one year Spurs win it? Yes. Could Arsenal win it? And so that is why those teams were in there in comparison with, let's say, Ajax. Because Ajax's stadium is, you know, 50,000, but can they expand that? Can they build bigger than they currently are? Is there room for that? And I don't think that there was. You know, because I think relatively, you're not going to get huge audiences for Dutch domestic football. There's only a handful of, you know, teams that, you know, have, can have 
year in year out success. And if you look at you know, the other you know, Dutch teams' record in Europe, it's fine, but it's nothing you know, majorly to write home about. You know, the point is is that the EASL is the difference between de jure and de facto. In other words, the Champions League produces wins for Real Madrid more often than not. It produces wins for the biggest clubs more often than not. Yes, there is the potential, but the difference in with modern with stratified football is, is that it's completely unlikely. It's not really going to happen, and the history of the tournament as itself points out that it's just really not going to happen. So, and really, what, again, what do you actually want from European football? Do you want the best players, the best teams, playing off against each other at, with the highest level of football? So if you compare it to, let's say, you know, compared to the, dry, the drama and the tribalism of the World Cup, you know, with the World Cup, you have tactical limitations. You know, you always have at World Cup, and in like the maybe the last two or three World Cups, you have the rise of the tactics snobs. And these people always want to suck the joy out of the World Cup by telling you, well, it's all very basic tactically, and it's just, oh, it annoys me. Those people wind me up. Like, it's the people that sort of watch the, the Dutch versus the, the Netherlands versus Argentina. And was like, well, actually, that was a basic comeback. It's like, yeah, but that was just amazing to watch as a football fan. You know, if, if, you, if you can't enjoy that, if you actually just, you know, focus more on it being defensive or long ball football. But the thing is, is that what you have with the, the World Cup is, in effect, it's an inaccessible peak for the overwhelming majority of fans. If you're an English, England supporter... There is a chance in your lifetime you may never win it all. You know, if you're you know a football supporter in India, there's a chance that India may you know until if they kept it at thirty two teams, there was a chance India would never qualify for a World Cup. You know, it, whereby I suppose with the Champions League, you have the element that you can cheer for the last British team in the tournament. You know, you can, you, you will, you know, most football fans, if you ask them, will prefer either one out of Real Madrid or Barcelona. You know, you will prefer, you know, maybe you might have more of a, an affection for the Milan teams than you do, you know, Juventus and Turin. It's that kind of principles. I think people want glamour. I think they want an element of an unbroken timeline, a history. I think they want drama and excitement. But I think what you have is is that you can't, as I've said, you can't have it. Pure meritocracy with the stratification. If you take the Spurs-Ajax semi-final, is that actually Spurs basically won that game off of the back of the Ajax youth system. You know, they'd signed Ericsson, they'd signed Jan Vertonghen, they'd signed Toby Alderweireld. Okay, Toby Alderweireld, yeah, had that loan spell at Southampton, but they signed him from Ajax. You know, there was a higher standard of play in the EPL in comparison with the Era Divise, you know, the Dutch league. But then you could make an argument that whoever won that game was probably doomed to lose to Liverpool on the field and on the balance sheet. And so the problem is, is that because what you want from European club football is entirely subjective, and really as a result, because you have such a wide group of fans and stakeholders is that reform is substantially nearly impossible and that's what you really get from the you know the, the swiss model which is going to be the, the reform champions league which is basically a lot more group games a lot more chances for the bigger teams to you know survive and to prosper and more money for everybody i mean one of the things is that the teams that you get in there year after year you always finish third or fourth who usually don't particularly lay much of a glove on the bigger teams is that they take that champions league money and then distorts their domestic league so in other words you get a situation where that team finishes bottom with three points out of their six group games but actually because they are making 10, 20 million pounds worth of prize money, means that they can dominate their league year after year. They can win it 10 years in a row, which then damages the domestic structure. So those people aren't going to necessarily be screaming. They're going to be, their argument for the European Super League was, we don't want to lose that 20 million. The point is, is that that 20 million leaving there, it's that they're not competitive in the Champions League and they're too dominant in their domestic league. So that's the thing that people were you know, under the surface weren't looking at because you you were more angry about 
the brazenness of it, then actually, and that's the thing, they never created a narrative. They never, and I think had they, had it not been for COVID, had it been something that they thought out, I think there's ways that you could have made the, the structure of the European Super League more interesting and you could have sold it in a way i think if you've got all of the i mean i rail about statistics sometimes and how it can take some of the joy out of the game out of all sports but actually if you have a way that you can actually tell me who out of europe is able to compete so in other words the thing is what the champions league shows you is that there are teams that have a narrow window that can compete they can get to the quarterfinals the semi-finals even the finals but it's finding those teams. You know, you have the um, Kempom rankings in college basketball. And basically, you can rank every single team in all the different con- conferences in frontline college basketball, and you can have 1 to 150. You could do the same thing. That, there's so much data that you could sit there and say, OK, let's say you have your 12 European Super League members, your founder members, who were too big to fail, so you might as well have them in anyway. Like, when's the last time you know, Barcelona didn't finish in the top four? When's the last time Real Madrid didn't finish in the top four? You know, when's the last time Man City didn't finish in the top four? You know, those teams are there, you know, come what may anyway. So what's the point in sitting there and saying, you know, they're always going to be there? But what if you could sit there and say, OK, here are the next eight best teams in Europe... And you get them to play off two legs, you know, in August, September for a chance to be in the European Super League. I think that could. So that meant that if you were good enough, you would be there. And not only would you be there on merit and there's some good games that people could watch to see. And you could have had voting for things like that. You could have had, you know, that kind of level of interaction where fans actually had a voice and those teams who do get into the European Super League would have actually had a relative chance but there was never that thought because it was so done so quickly you know there was no guiding leader there wasn't a Kerry Packer there wasn't a Pete Rosell there wasn't a Ban Johnson now Ban Johnson was you know the sort of forerunner and the father of the American League in baseball in the beginning of the 20th century. Kerry Packer and all of the reforms that came out of um, World Series cricket in the 70s. You know, uh, drop-in pitches, coloured kits, night matches. You know, all of those in, you know, cricket innovations you know, changed the sport. It made it more professional. It made it more fan-friendly. You know, there was an element of creeping globalisation in there, but... That was more beneficial than keeping cricket, you know, which was being run by very conservative, very old people. But the point is, is that, you know, with Florentino Perez, is that, you know, I suppose for him it was almost like to trying to ape uh, Santiago Bernabeu, but who was, you know, the fa- you know one of the founding sort of guiding lights of Real Madrid. That's why the stadium is named after him. I butchered the pronunciation, but is that. He is not that sort of... He doesn't have that guiding thing. He is, you know, I will pay, do whatever. I will pay whatever money it is to keep Real Madrid at the top, even if it means huge amounts of debts. I mean, the point is is that these three clubs that were the sort of forerunners of it, you know, you've now had Juve with the plus Valens scandal and their 15-point deduction. You Barcelona, who are spending money that they don't really have, and hope that in 15 years' time, there is some more magical money that will pay off the money that they've just spent now. You know, they're robbing Peter to pay Paul. You know, you've had you know, situations where Real Madrid have, don't have as much money. You know, really, it was debt panic, and it was a powerful desire of stability, but there was nothing behind it. There was no deepness to it. They hadn't done any research. There wasn't any ticket pricing issues or carbon. Really, all they were doing was throwing a bit of money after the fact, you know, with the hope that no one would notice. You know, it was poorly thought out. It was poorly articulated. You know, yes, there are, you know, he, you know one of um, Perez's arguments is, is that young people aren't able to keep attention for 90 minutes and how that is impacting the way how people view club football. He may have a point, but there was no research done about it. It was just, you know, the point is, is that the solution to that was not necessarily the European Super League in the way how it was built. You know, you know, the European Super League was not there to fix the underlying problems. It was a way to merely create a gilded artificial product. It was football adjacent.
I mean, it, but one of the things that I think fascinates me is is that it, I suppose there's the political question behind it. Like, so I suppose the key point is, what did the European Super League do politically to its detractors? Well, it, it created a, a convenient, you know, common enemy. If you take the UK, you know, England, for example, you note that the top six clubs' fans were the main provocateurs. You know, they were the ones, you know, storming Old Trafford, uh, you know, protesting outside of Stamford Bridge. You know, they were the people that were re- who were beneficiaries of this European Super League who didn't want it. But the point is, is that they were all united with all football fans, but they are the ones who have been the guardians and they've been enthusiastic stratifiers. They've been the ones that have created this world where the haves and have-nots. You know, it's... It became a disparate coalition, but that is fractured now. It's, it, you know, the point is, is that where were the Chelsea protesters... You know, when Clear Lake and Todd Bowley was buying the club and then spending obscene transfer money, like, yeah, four, five, six hundred million pounds. They weren't outside Stamford Bridge, you know, protesting that and the damage that would do. You know, Newcastle fans weren't protesting against, you know, the Saudis taking over. You know, the thing is, is that what the European Super League in its failures and its, which, you know, are manifest, it proved definitively what football fans did not want, but actually, there was no sense that anyone really sat down and debated what they did want. They don't. They don't really want. They don't want change, but they don't necessarily want the status quo. And so you've now got really the Swiss model, but no one's really arguing against it because it's it's slightly different, but it's not. You know, it's almost the equivalency to you know renaming the European Cup the Champions League. If it's the same t- actual trophy, it's the same tournament. It's not really that much different. It may be some jimmies here and there, but it's not really different. But you know, really at the moment, you've got a, a painful glide from de jure to de facto. Really, it is. You know, nothing is really changing, and nor is there the. The opposition haven't. They haven't used this moment to unite or to create a, a coherent plan for how you would fix European football. So you're now really leaving it to the European Club Association, and to be fair, there's if you notice it that there was a different level of criticism, the support, the protests weren't as vociferous in Italy and Spain as they were in England. I think with Italy and with Spain, they are very used to a world in which Juventus, Real Madrid and Barcelona have dominated. And that maybe you might have a situation where occasionally an Atletico Madrid might might win the odd title under Simeone. And the hint that actually when he leaves, will, will will Atletico be able to maintain that level? That that Simeone has offered them, or will they drop off? And in Italy, yeah, maybe you get, you know, periods of time when Juventus are dominant, but then you get AC or Inter. But who else? Who else is really, you know, Roma have spent quite a bit of money, but they're still quite far behind. You've had this great Napoli team that have come out, and this is, looks like the year they're finally going to win. But outside of that, I don't really see a world in which Fiorentina are likely to win a title. I don't see Atalanta necessarily being able to win a title. So as a result for them, the European Super League just seemed like the, you know, the next logical point to it. And it was whereby I think the Premier League, because there are more teams that have a chance at winning it, the fact that Arsenal could win it this year, you've had Leicester, you know, there's any, there can be six or seven teams that could potentially win it. It's far more, it's far, I think for English football fans, they felt that they were losing far much, far more than what the Spanish and the Italian fans, I think, were losing. I mean, I think it's one of the interesting points is that the Premier League teams were grafted on. And I've often got the feeling that reading about it, that what you had was a situation where Juventus, Barca and Real were the, the front runners. And then all the Premier League teams were all kind of given the same opportunity to, to join. And there was always, I suppose, for Tottenham and Arsenal, their thought process was is that they were already falling behind the... 
you know, Man City, Chelsea, you know, Liverpool to a lesser extent, and you always have the Behem off that is United. If someone like a Ten Hag or a different owner, then Man United would be back. So for them, the only way that they were going to be able to compete would be to join the European Super League. Is it was in their interest because somebody else could take their place. Now for the top four, no, those big four teams was that if if it did succeed, they might be left behind, and then because they're competing with Real Madrid, Juventus, well, yeah, Real Madrid and Barca for the Champions Leagues. So for them, I think so. In other words, all of those teams almost sort of basically was like, well. What if the competition, what if the, the teams that we are directly fighting with, what if they join and they get all of this money and we're left behind? And so then you know, it was always that fear that you might be the ones left you know, on the outside looking in. Which then I think is fascinating as in you have the German teams. Now the German teams are different because of their ownership structures. It was not going to be as easy as just basically putting a note on the official website saying, by the way, we joined the European Super League. And but I think and you know, PSG not joining. But the thing is, is that there were spaces for all. You know, let's say so there were spaces for Bayern, Dortmund, and PSG. Now the point was is that if let's say the Super League had, if they had brazened it out, if they had done it anyway, and it became successful, then those teams could have joined. Those teams were not going to be refused. So I think there is an element of sort of canny politicking on it. In other words, it. You know, it the fans were behind them for you know sticking out of it, but at the same time, is that they weren't losing out on anything. They could have joined had it become de facto. Had it be, had it happened, they could have then joined. And if you look at it, you look at the PSG owner. You know, by supporting UEFA, that has helped them, and it's helped you know when you know in the build up to the World Cup being held in Qatar, and now you know the head of PSG is now the head of the European Club Association. So that has actually worked for them. The thing is is that, that while there was an element of principle in it, it they were they always had the option to join had it been successful and they wouldn't have lost out. I mean the one thing I haven't really mentioned is the fact that they've they've gone back to the drawing board with the European Super League and I suppose what they're now going to try and do is their current proposal is to create four different divisions of 20 teams and then you get promoted up you know almost in a sort of league structure now personally I don't see it as working because you have that at the moment it's but I just don't see anyone watching European Super League Division 4. And I don't suppose anyone would really care. Because, well, you're three divisions away from the actual trophy. Yeah, the real trophy. The, the one that people care about. And so, realistically, those bottom two divisions, you are three or four years away from even getting a chance to, to compete for the big one. So, you know, you'll make some money, but... You know, are you gonna are you gonna have a throw a parade if you win European Super League Division Four? I mean, at least with the Europa League and the Europa Conference, it's a it's a trophy, and you get into the Champions League anyway. At you know, or you move up to the next level. But I think, I mean, would I get would I be angry if Spurs got relegated from Division Three to Division Four? Yeah, but I. I just don't see myself being particularly enthused by it. And, you know, well, what happens if you halfway through your thing, you're in mid-table in Division 3? Just, I, just, I just don't see it having that kind of level of joy, whereby at least with the current structure, there is, you know, some enjoyment once you get to, you know, if you're in the Europa League, once you get to the quarterfinals, that's when it gets... You know, there's a high level, you know, there are good teams in the Europa League. There's even some good teams in the conference. But the sense is, is that you can win the conference and then, you know, move, you can do quite well in the, in the Europa League. I just don't see it really working. And I think at this point they're just trying to, you know, they're trying to just basically widen the pie so as many different teams get as much money and, but I just I I think it's one of those things where I think you have to wait at least five or ten years before you can realistically start discussing trying to to create it. I think that the 
political blowback and the damage that it's done, it, it's going to take a while. It's not something that you're going to be able to fix within you know sort of three to four years. It's something that's going to take 10, 15 years. But I think one of the points is, is that it was reflectively dismissed, and understandably so, but it wasn't rather than debate or engage, I think it was almost, there's an element of political untenability. You know, journalists were fears that if you weren't seen as being, you know, not critical enough. What you have at the moment is, I suppose, an imperfect system. You have the history of the European Cup, which is, is special, but what the European Cup did was create super clubs. The entire ethos from day one when you came up with the idea was who is the best team in Europe? And so naturally, if you were doing it you know, in the 50s with the travel restrictions, with all the other bits and pieces, the most obvious and simple way was you got all the champions of Europe, you had a cup competition, and whoever won would be champion of Europe. It was simple, it was straightforward. And one of the first successful teams, the first successful team was Real Madrid. They played in all whites. They had you know, foreign players. They had superstars. And they played great football. You know, you have the Eintracht Frankfurt final where they beat them 7-3 at Hampden Park. So Alex Ferguson was in the crowd. And it was a major moment in European football. And then you had, you know, you had Eusebio and the great Benfica teams. You had you know, the Milan teams. You had, you know, Best winning it at Wembley for Manchester United. You have the Liverpool successes in the 70s and 80s. You've had great Real Madrid teams in the 90s, early 2000s. You've had the current great Real Madrid team that will come back from the dead. It, it has done a, a job. The Champions League is the height of world football, to be completely honest, in terms of tactics, in terms of stars. But it is it has created problems. It's... Only a handful of teams can realistically succeed in it. The Some of the lower level issues in terms of the damage it's doing to some of the smaller European leagues because their champions are winning it every year but off, off of the back of the, the Champions League money. And whereby I think that the European Super League would have provided the best quality of football. You have to factor in that the way they did it was crass. It was money dominated. You know, it. You know, I have some sympathy for the financial situation that Juventus, Real Madrid, and Barcelona got themselves into. But that was their own greed, their own desire to dominate, to the the extent of everybody else. To the, and that greed is why they are all three in relatively speaking poor financial positions, and really that is you know. And that the financial fair play rules that UEFA did have not really had the desired effect. You do have a situation. I've probably been in this podcast guilty of of being pro, you know, Premier League when actually the Premier League now has so much more money than the rest of it that they are, you know, dominant in terms of tra- transfers, and that is having a warping and damaging effect on you know European football as a whole. And really, to end this podcast, I suppose the question mark is, is is there a leader? Is there, you know, a Santiago Bernabeu? Is there somebody out there that can actually create a high-end European club tournament that actually showcases the best of European football? That, you know, all of those great moments that we all remember from the European Cup historically, from the Champions League in recent memory but in a way that actually betters what we have, that actually does allow for Cinderella teams not just to get to the semi-final, not just to get to the quarter-finals, not just to be gallant losing finalists, but can actually win. A situation where actually, where teams east of Italy have a chance, where a team from France that isn't PSG has, has an opportunity. I think there is a way, but at the moment, I with the political landscape that we have, I'm not 100% sure. And I think it's best to end this podcast on a positive note. The fact is is that when the Euro- that the people that created the European Super League never imagined in a million years that there would be the kind of groundswell of of opposition to it. They really thought that people would just go along with it. 
And that's the really great thing is just that at the moment the situation isn't perfect and the, the Swiss model reforms I don't think are going to fix the issue. But, you know, European club football and the trophy itself, the European Cup, the Champions League trophy, lives to fight another day. And that's all we really want as football fans is the idea that there is hope that things can get better and that there is at some point the will and desire not to give in to money every single, at every single opportunity. Thank you for listening.